Hey, what's up, my fellow apes? On today's show, which is episode 8 of the Armed Ape Podcast, I'm going to talk about the movie uh, Death Wish. Now, this was released in 1974. It starred Charles Bronson. There's actually quite a few faces in there that are recognizable. There's a bunch of people in there that you're going to say, Hey, I, I know that person. Um, one of those is there's a grocery clerk at the uh, store where the family goes. And I've looked at her and I was like, who is that person? That somebody's very familiar. Well, it turns out she's Maria from Sesame Street. So, and, and you see lots of other people that are in there. There's Jeff Goldblum. There's um, Christopher Guest. Uh, several other people who, again, you, you look at them and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that person. But anyway, the movie uh, Death Wish was released in 1974. It was based on a book by a guy named Brian W. Garfield. And I think that was released in 72. I'm not sure when he actually started writing that book. Uh, one of the things and one of the points in the movie that we'll get to later, a big event had happened in very recent American history, especially at the time that the book was written and released, and that was the Gun Control Act of 1968. And this did a lot to really restrict people's rights as far as firearms. Uh, it really trampled on the Second Amendment. There's things from that act that we're still dealing with today as people that support the Second Amendment and believe in gun ownership. And, and uh, there's a lot of things in there that, that should be repealed. Uh, anyway, I'm starting to get on more on a little political rant, and I want to steer back toward the movie. What we'll do is I'm going to take a little bit of a break here, and we'll we'll uh, when we come back from the break, we'll go over my contact info, and uh, I also got some emails, and I got a uh, voicemail, and I'll play those, and we'll do that right when we get back.
tase me, bro. Don't tase me. I can't do anything. Ow! 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 All right, I got an email from Mike, and basically he's telling me a little bit about what's going on. He's joined up with the NRA as a life member. Uh, joined up a couple other organizations is doing things uh that he's he's basically doing things that are going to help ensure that you know his rights and my rights and all of us that listen uh, to this show and all of us that are again are supporters of uh, gun rights and even just supporters of being able to go out into public lands and do things like that uh, maybe you're not a super big uh, super big gun guy like i am or like mike is or some of the other guys that listen but maybe you're one of the guys that likes to go out on public lands and likes to hunt and camp and fish. Well, a lot of those infringements and a lot of those things that are going to come down on gun owners, eventually they're going to get to you because some whack job environmentalist is going to say, you know what, you can't go out there and trample that titmouse's you know, habitat. So that stuff is all off limits and off. Uh, nobody's going to be able to go out there anymore. So get involved with stuff. Uh, don't just sit back and wait for somebody else to take care of stuff for you because that's not going to happen. If you let things slide, if you let things um, go by the wayside, you know, if you just kind of say, eh, somebody else will get to it, nobody else is going to get to it. If it's important to you, get involved. Uh, and I also got another email from Jens from Germany, and he said that he's going to do a uh, review on... He has some reloading equipment that he has. I believe he has a Lee Pro 1000. When he gets that into me, he's going to do an actual, I think, an MP3 and send that into me. So that reminds me, if you want to send in a review, if you want to even just send in uh, just or a regular email, easiest way to do that is to send that to me, uh, just thearmedape at gmail.com. That's all one word, thearmedape at gmail.com. If you've got a little bit bigger um, MP3 file on a review that you've done, and I had talked about this on a previous show, the a lot of times your emails won't let you go over a certain amount, and a lot of times the reviews and the MP3s and things are going to be more than that, what that amount is. The best way to do it is you can go through a place. Um, I went. I always use transferbigfiles.com. And what you do is you upload the stuff to their server. They hold it for like seven days, and then they send you know me an email. They'll say, you know, Yen sent you a, a MP3 file that's waiting here. You can download it. And then if you don't download it within seven days, it goes away, but they get rid of it. So that's a real good way to do that. Or you can call over to the voicemail line, and that's area code 206-339-3266. And again, that number is area code 206 339-3266. If you're going to do that, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Like I said, after I get done kind of doing a little bit of jibber-jabber here, I'll play the uh, uh, voicemail that I got. It is a uh, a five-minute cutoff, so if you you don't want to do an MP3 on a review or something, and if if you can get it under that five minutes, go ahead and send that to me on the voicemail, and we can play that on there. Sometimes the quality is not going to be that great, but uh, the the message that I got was really good quality seemed like to me so anyway um, let's go ahead and play that voicemail hey Tony this is Christian in Louisville I just wanted to let you know oh rather this is for the armed ape I just want to let you know that I love both your shows although your language sir 
I find that shit highly offensive, and I think you need to wash your fucking mouth out with a big-ass bar of soap. Other than that, everything's great, especially your taste in music. Uh, personally, Room Full of Milfs was just hilarious. I actually had to listen to that twice. And just a, a personal note, what is it with you and Carl? Uh, do you have a man crush on Carl, or is it retarded dwarfs in general? Just just curious. Anyway, keep up the good work. Love the show. Bye. Hey, that was our my one and only voicemail so far. Like I said, I hope to hear from you guys. Uh, Chris, that really made my day hearing that message from you. I got a big kick out of it. Uh, as far as to answer your question about Carl, I mean, uh, come on, you know, the guy's like about a foot tall. Have you seen a picture of him? He, he does sort of have that retarded dwarf look and, you know, he's kind of troll-like in appearance. And let's face it, not too sharp on the old uptake there. But uh, for those of you guys that don't know, Carl is a host of one of the hosts of The Gun Dudes. And that's one of my, uh, probably one of my favorite podcasts over at the Gun Rights Radio Network. Um, you know, it's funny, Chris is giving me a little bit of shit about my language. But one of the main reasons I kind of came over here was because on one of my episodes, I think I, I used a couple of, of bad words. I think I said, uh, I think the phrase was, uh, what did I say? I think I said, God damn it, people can be so fucking irritating at times. And I tell you what, I got emails on that. I got, you know, basically people saying, you know, what a dirtbag I was and how I'd really hurt the movement, you know, Second Amendment movement and all this other kind of crap. You know, and people, some of the people just went apeshit and not in a good way. And some people went apeshit and in a good way. And I got some stuff that said, hey, you know, it was good to hear you kind of get fired up and speak your mind and stuff like that. But I'm constantly amazed at how thin-skinned some people are. You know, people have all these preconceived notions. And everybody likes to say, oh, I'm tolerant for this. Or I'm, I'm tolerant of other people. And this guy can do whatever he wants to. But when it gets right down to it, it's really, that's not the case. Most people are very narrow-minded, and if you don't fit into their little mold of what they consider to be acceptable behavior, or if you don't fit into their kind of moral or ethical codes, then you're a total scumbag. And it's funny, the same people that would get offended at me using, you know, curse words or me using a little bit more sexually charged language... Those are the same people that use that type of language every day and tell dirty jokes every day and ha-ha, it's funny and it's no harm done. You know, we say one of the things that we value is freedom of expression and, and freedom to be and, and say the things that you want to do as long as you're not physically harming somebody else. But when it comes right down to it, they really do want to censor you. I, a while back I got an email and I can't remember what I what was something I said, but the person wanted me to actually re-record the whole show, and I during email responses with the person, I basically said, kind of in so many words, "Are you out of your fucking mind?" And the, I could tell this is the kind of guy that they wanted to go back and forth, and they just wanted to argue. Look, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. That's great. You can you should have your own opinions and you should feel strongly about them. But don't tell me that I can't have opinions or that I can't express myself the way I want to, especially in the form of a podcast. I mean, 
you know, some people say, oh, think of the children, think of the children. You can't stumble onto this accidentally. You have to subscribe to it. You have to physically go to the website and actually listen to it and start playing. It's not like you're flipping the channels and boom, this comes on. Man, people are just so stupid sometimes. You know, it's like, well, you have the right to say and do whatever you want until I don't like it and then you can't say it anymore. Well, this doesn't have too much to do with the movie, does it? So let me steer it back and I'll start the review of Death Wish. And now we go live to our men on the street. This is Neville Upright reporting for the Omday Podcast. Excuse me, sir, what did you just think of the host's comments that I played for you? As far as I'm concerned, the guy's flipped his wig. Mm, yes, that's quite true. Truer words have never been spoken. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, on with the show. Now, again, we're doing the review of Death Wish, and that's a 1974 movie starring Charles Bronson. It actually did quite well in the box office. I think it was released in the summertime. And uh, what we'll do is I'll start to just do the review and I'll drop in some clips, kind of like I did last time, and then toward the end we'll do a little bit of, uh, of a wrap-up. And I think what, we'll, what I'll do is maybe I'll do some of that compare and contrast along the way. I don't know if I'll save it toward the end or not, so we'll just kind of see how it goes as I'm, as I'm recording. Uh, the movie opens up, and uh, Charles Bronson and his wife, he plays, uh, his character's name is Paul Kersey. They're in Hawaii having a good time. Uh, they come back to the city after the vacation is over, and you can you can see it on their faces in the cab that they're kind of getting back into that city vibe. Uh, for those of you guys that have not seen the movie, he is an arch- he works for an architectural firm, and he's what would be considered a, a very... Uh, probably upper middle class. In his firm, he would be considered probably one of their top guys. So he gets back to the office and one of his buddies, uh, a guy there who probably would be on the opposite political spectrum of uh, his character, meets up with him and and talks to him about it. So I'll, I'll go ahead and play that clip here. You want to know what was happening while you and Joanna were living it up in Maui or Cowie or Yowie, whatever it is? What? There were 15 murders the first week and 21 last week in this goddamn city. That's a lot. You know, decent people are going to have to work here and live somewhere else. By decent people, you mean people who can afford to live somewhere else. Oh, Christ. You are such a bleeding heart liberal, Paul. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. The underprivileged are beating our goddamn brains out. You know what I say? Stick them in concentration camps. That's what I say. So again, we see that this scene is setting up that he is more of a kind of a liberal bent philosophically. When we look at how his uh, buddy there at work is portrayed, this is one of the criticisms that I do have of the movie. And one of the places where I think that they are a little heavy handed. You know, especially with that that statement at the end of, oh, you know, put him in a concentration camp, round everybody up and do that. That, I thought, was, you know, put in there basically kind of just a shock. It's a shocking statement to hear today. It would have been shocking to hear back in the 70s. In some regards, you see that a lot of the characters, in my opinion, sometimes can morph from a character in the movie almost into a caricature of what they of what the the director wanted to to represent and that that's one of my criticisms of it uh, but again another thing too 
and this is a little bit of an aside, is we see that probably even though that these guys are on the opposite end politically, they're actually pretty good friends. And while they may be on different ends of the field politically, they at least have respect for each other. They can they can differ and still remain friends and still say, well, at least that guy believes in something. And I think that's something in our modern society that we've really lost. We've lost, we've we've divided ourselves up more so into camps of, you know, you need to be right wing or you're left wing or you need to be conservative or liberal or libertarian or this or that or blah, blah, blah. And it seems that in this country we've lost the ability to argue different points with people that we know, yet still remain friends with them. When I was a kid, I knew uh, friends of my parents that were totally opposite spectrums uh, politically and in some cases even on religion, and they would argue about those things. Uh, And these were two old guys that my dad knew, and they were constantly arguing about stuff, but they were the best of friends. They at least had respect for the other person's viewpoint, even if they thought they were wrong. That didn't come in and and uh, and totally divide them. So anyway, we'll that's uh, just kind of an aside I went on there. Uh, let's go ahead and get back to the movie. So in the next scene, we cut over to the grocery store where Paul's wife and his adult daughter, who's uh, married, are buying groceries. Uh, they buy their groceries and tell the people at the store, "Hey, deliver them to our uh, to our apartment." And there's three thugs in there that are raising a bunch of hell. They kind of hone in on uh, Joanna and her daughter. And they walk by. They, what they do is they've got the groceries and bags and they just set them on a counter. And inside they've got a delivery slip. And then those guys look and get the address um, from, from the bag. They see the address. They go up to where their apartment is. They knock on the door, tell them. The daughter goes to answer. She thinks it's the uh, delivery people coming. The guy says, oh, we're here to deliver the groceries. They bust in. They want to get money from them. Uh, the primary person, or excuse me, the primary reason that they were there was because they thought that they would be able to get a lot of money from them. They only get something like $7. This uh, kind of enrages them. They end up sexually assaulting the daughter and beating the mother. Uh, they leave after the assault, and the daughter crawls over to the phone, calls the police. The next scene, we're in the hospital. Their daughter's husband, whose name is Jack, calls up Paul at work and says, Hey, you got to get down to the hospital. Something bad has happened. We're not really sure what's what's going on. They've not given me a lot of information. Paul meets Jack at the hospital. I'm going to go ahead and play a little bit of a clip of kind of what he experiences while he's at the hospital. When are we going to know something? They know we're here. The nurses know I spoke to one of them. Somebody ought to come. There's a man over there. He's bleeding. And nobody comes. Nurse, we're waiting to find out what happened to my wife and daughter. Oh, a doctor will see you after he's made his examination. But we've been waiting a long time. It hasn't been that long yet, just two or three minutes. Mr. Toby? Yes. Your wife is all right. We've sedated her and put her to bed. My name is Paul Kersey. How's my wife? 
I'm sorry. She died a few minutes ago, Mr. Kersey. And so what we're starting to see here is that he's starting to slowly kind of make a switch, so to speak, from the character's point of view of he's looking around, he's seeing that there are people that need help, but nothing's happening. So he's starting to, this is the first thing where you're starting to maybe see his mind start to change a little bit to where he's starting to understand, well, nobody's going to help me. And even if they want to, there's so many other people that are either in line before me uh, or that maybe are a little bit more worse off than I am that I'm low on the totem pole. I'm pretty low as far as, as a priority of getting some help. Right after that, the next scene cuts to them at the funeral for his wife and the daughter at the funeral. When you first look at her, you think, oh, she's just kind of devastated. And what you kind of come to find out later is she's pretty much comatose. Now, what we also learn at the funeral is that he, it seems like he's been staying over with his son-in-law and his daughter at their house. He says something in there to the effect of it's, he's got to go back to his own apartment at some time. So I'm not sure exactly how long in the movie it's been. Probably, realistically, maybe only two, three days, if that. So after the funeral, he goes down to the police station to check and see if there's been any progress made on the case. And he ends up talking to the detective in charge, and this is what this guy says. Uh, I dropped by see if you had any information on the people who attacked my family. I'll take it to the detective in charge of the case. Lieutenant, this is Mr. Paul Kearse, case number 884. His wife and daughter were assaulted. Yeah, I know you, Mr. Kersey. Yeah, I'm going on duty now, Mr. Kersey, so I'll leave you. Thanks, sir. Right this way, Mr. Kersey. You have a seat, Mr. Kersey? <laughs> You found out anything yet? Well, the supermarket security officer and one of the checkers remembers these three characters leaving right after Mrs. Kersey and your daughter. I think they could have gotten the apartment number off the address on the grocery bags, but they haven't been able to pick the faces out of the mock book. How is your daughter, Mr. Kersey? She's under doctor's sedation right now. But today I had the funeral for my wife up in Connecticut, and she was able to make that. Your daughter didn't give us much information, Mr. Kersey. We wish we could persuade her to take a look at the mug books. Did she refuse? Her husband asked us to wait for a few days. In fact, the sooner she looks at the mug books, the better chance she has of recalling one or two of her faces. Well, uh, talk to my son-in-law. See what can be done. I'd appreciate that, Mr. Kersey. Uh, any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. In the city, that's the way it is. And so what we're seeing here once again is that it's the same as the hospital. There's so many people, there's so many people that need stuff, there's so many people that have been victimized that he is, it's beginning to dawn on him and he's beginning to understand that he's going to be probably just a number. Like the lieutenant said, that's just the way it is in the city. It's also at this point that we find out that the daughter is so traumatized by the event that she's not really going to be any help. Pretty much she's going to be medicated all the time. We uh, now see him. He's back at home. He's uh, in his apartment. It's evening time. It's dark. He's uh, sitting there watching TV. 
He goes up and looks out the window, looks down the street, and nothing much is going on. He kind of turns around, and then he hears something. He turns back around, looks out the window again, and he sees down on the street some people break into a car. And this is kind of a, a crucial scene in the movie to me. He actually just pull. he gets kind of a scared look on his face, and he pulls the shade down. So you see that he's starting to kind of withdraw. He's starting to go into himself a little bit more. So what we really see is that he's starting to get spooked. He's starting to see the city in a different light than what he what he had previously seen it as before. And again, this is a point maybe where there is a little bit of comparison from the brave one in that both uh, Jodie Foster and uh, her fiance kind of viewed the city. They knew bad things happened. But it didn't necessarily happen to them. And again, that's how I think the Kersey's life were. Yeah, they knew bad things happened, but that stuff didn't really touch them. Like, like I said, he's starting to get spooked. He goes to the bank, gets a couple of uh, like $20 worth of quarters or something like that. And he puts them into a sock so that he's got something maybe to defend himself with. So we see here that he's, he's getting into that mindset of, well, if something happens to me, what am I going to do? At work, they offer him a project that's down in Tucson. He says, ah, I want to think about it. Um, he then goes over to his son-in-law's house. The son-in-law says, look, we need to, the doctors are saying we need to change the scene, and we're going to get out of the city. And he's like, well, hey, I'll go with you. And the son-in-law says, no, you know, the doctors say you shouldn't be around her because you remind her of mom, and that's going to remind her of the attack, and blah, blah, blah. And so at that point, he decides, well, I guess I will take that offer to go down to Tucson because I'll get out of town too. So um, as he's walking home, he uh, everything is kind of spooking him. There's a dude that lights a cigarette behind him and he's kind of spooked and he's, he's walking uh, back to his apartment. Then the first kind of attack happens to him in that a guy comes up behind him and says, you know, give me all your money, give me all your money. He turns around kind of slowly, starts to turn around, and then he reaches into his pocket and grabs that sock full of quarters and smacks a guy in the head. And the dude kind of drops his knife and turns off and runs away. And then he runs back to his apartment. And it kind of sinks in what just happened to him. He's feeling pretty good. He starts swinging his you know, his sock, his sock full of quarters around and he hits the chair a couple of times. Then he hits it again and it, it bursts open and coins go flying everywhere. And then you can see the expression on his face is kind of like, oh, well, I guess this isn't such a great weapon after all. So he's kind of, even though he's had a little bit of a victory, he's sort of back on square one. So he heads out to Tucson. He meets up with the real estate developer out there. They go out and uh, in this part of the movie is where there's a lot of things that are brought up about the differences between, you know, of course, New York and, and Tucson and how things in the country overall have been changing. So Ames takes Paul over to old Tucson and, and has him watch a uh, kind of an old western, you know, shoot 'em up show. And as Paul is watching it, you kind of get the impression, at least I got the impression, that as he's watching that, he's seeing, well, here are some bad guys, but they're getting taken care of by the sheriff, and that if you want something taken care of, you sort of need to take matters into your own hands if you want to get any type of results. And maybe that's a little bit reaching on my part, but 
again, that this is some of the things that I thought were some of the subtleties of the movie. A little bit later, uh, Ames is saying to Paul, man, you're working too much. Why don't you come out and have dinner with me? I'll take you to this club. And it's a, it's a different type of club. And I'll go ahead and play the clip. When do I get a look-see? In a couple days. Guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Somebody once said, I forget who, that he never looked back because something might be gaining on him. What's gaining on you, Paul? $20 million investment. What else? Well, I was going to ask you to have dinner with me at the club, but I don't think you'd be very good company. No, I don't think I would. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. It's a gun club. We shoot guns. It's a goddamn much hoopla from the gun control people. Half the nation's scared to even hold a gun. You know, like it was a snake who was going to bite you or something. Hell, a gun, a gun is just a tool. Like a hammer or an axe. Wasn't long ago you used to put food on the table. Keep foxes out of the chicken coop. Rustlers off the range. Bandits out of the bank. Paul, how long since you held a pistol in your hand? A long time. Which war was yours, Korea? Yeah. See much action? A little. Or infantry? I was a CO in a medical unit. Commanding officer, huh? Conscientious objective. <laughs> oh, Christ. What a guest to bring to a gun club. <laughs> You're probably one of them knee-jerk liberals thinks us gun boys will shoot our guns because it's a, an extension of our penises. I never thought about it that way. It could be true. Or maybe it is. But this is gun country. Can he own a handgun in New York City? Out here, I hardly know a man that doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something. Unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they just plain get their asses blown up. Yeah, slip these on. All right. It's a percussion pistol. 1842. Mind if I try this hog leg coat? No. Well, you a peculiar conscientious objector. These notches for real? Yeah. Belong to a gunfighter named Candy Dan, 1890. I do know something about guns, Ames. I grew up with them. All kinds of guns. You see, my father was a hunter. I guess out here you'd call him a gunman. My mother was the other side of the coin. My father was killed in a hunting accident. Some fool mistook him for a deer, you see. My mother won the toss. I never touched a gun since. I loved my father.
I know that that was a pretty long clip, but I did want to play it in its entirety because I felt, again, if we compare it to the Brave one, there was never really anything about gun control or about how things were different in different places. Um, so I thought with this movie, at least they brought up the idea that guns aren't bad, that guns aren't the root of the problem, but that they're just a tool. And it also kind of says, look, if maybe if you had more guns in New York uh, and, if, and if more law-abiding people could have them, maybe you wouldn't have so much crime. Uh, you know, he says, we're safe in our city at night. And it, and it doesn't make the point, I didn't think it was making the point that he was saying, well, nothing bad ever happens. But uh, again, this was something that just was not done at all in the uh, in the Brave one. So what happens from there is the uh, changes that Paul had been working on meet with Ames's approval. He goes back to New York, and uh, on the plane ride back, he... Uh, Ames gives Paul uh, a present, sticks it in his suitcase. He arrives back in New York. He's met at the airport uh, by his son-in-law, who lets him know that his daughter hasn't gotten any better. She's only gotten worse. She's catatonic, and they're looking at maybe, the doctors are telling him that he may need to commit her to a sanatorium. And what follows is a clip where they, they kind of talk about some of that. If you don't sign the papers... What happens? I guess they keep her in the hospital until the insurance runs out. That won't be too long. If you sign the papers and she's committed, what then? Well, they've got an insurance policy that covers it up to about 600 a month. They've recommended a sanatorium out in Long Island. Jack, this commitment, is it a one-way thing? Nobody can answer that, Dad. You want to know what they are? They're statistics on a police blotter. Mom and Carol, along with thousands of other people. And there is nothing that we can do to stop it. Nothing but cut and run. So he heads back home, and he's unpacking stuff, and he's... Uh... Looking at the mail, and he finds pictures of he and his wife from Hawaii. And, you know, a lot of people criticize him for not being that great of an actor or not being able to emote well, but in this scene, he actually does. It's, it's a very subtle thing, but you just see a lot of sadness on his face. It's not overdone. Like I said, it, it's just, you know, you, you can tell that he's looking at the pictures and he's, he's just devastated. He's heartbroken about it. Uh, he goes to start to unpack some of his stuff, and he finds that uh, he finds that the present that he got from Ames, which actually turns out to be a little 32 revolver, it's a little pearl handle thing. Now, a little bit of compare and contrast. Again, I guess if we talk with the brave one, they did something similar in the fact that when she, when they were getting married, they were or going through the process of getting the wedding set up and stuff. They had ordered the invitations, and of course, the invitations arrive. Uh, on for Jodie Foster, uh, and that kind of reminds her of the same thing. So they did sort of the same thing like that. Uh, and again, uh, that wasn't a terrible scene, uh, but you can see where they got that from. So he goes out for a walk in the park, and he is kind of tailed by a dude who approaches him, and this is what happens. You got money, man? Yeah. 
shit. I'll kill you. Give me your money or I'll bust you up. Okay, so even I'll admit that was kind of a hokey death scene. But this is his first uh, killing. And uh, you could say that he, had he gone to the police, he might have gotten some trouble. But he would have been justified. They probably would have made a case for a justifiable shooting. Uh, like I said, he may have gotten in some other trouble as far and had to pay a fine as far as having the, having a handgun on him when he wasn't supposed to. He goes back to his apartment, and he's real shook up about it. He gets sick. The cops are out there the next morning, and this is where we meet uh, Vincent Gardenia's character, who is uh, Inspector Ochoa. And they find the guy that Charles Bronson had, that Paul, excuse me, had shot. And they're like, well, you know, who was this guy? And they were like, oh, he was an ex-con and a drug addict, and... Um, we think that uh, he's got a bullet in his chest and we think that there was this gun that was by the body that hadn't been fired. We're pretty sure it's his. And he says to uh, and the inspector, in fact, it's the inspector who was working on Charles Bronson's case, says to Ochoa, he says, well, I got a theory. What if it was he tried to rob somebody and he got shot for his trouble? And then another cop who's there says, well, what if it was two guys that were trying to rob each other? And the inspector who's going through the wallet says, no, it wasn't that because this guy still has got money in his pocket. And then the next scene cuts to a thing where it's the paper and it says, you know, ex-con killed for unknown motive or something like that. And again, being in New York and when, and this is a thing of, of where the movie kind of downfalls and a little bit where it kind of, it, it falls down a little bit the same with the brave one in that in a city that size, that's not probably not going to make headline news on the front page that some drug addict got killed. I just don't think that that would have probably even been reported or it may have been reported, but it would have been buried deep in the paper because that stuff happens every single day. So now we come to a part where he is walking home. The scene opens up and uh, there's this guy who's just getting the crap kicked out of him by three dudes. And they've dragged him down to an alleyway. And then Paul is walking by and he stops and he's watching him. And then they look up and they kind of see him. They approach him. He pulls out his revolver, shoots two, drops him right there. Shoots another guy kind of lower in the back or leg. The guy's hobbling off trying to climb a fence. He comes up, bang, shoots him right in the back. Um, the witness actually gets a look at Paul when the police talk to him. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and play that clip. Was he a white man or a black man? I just don't know. Come on, they were under that streetlight. I wasn't seeing too good. I had blood in my eyes. What was he tall? Short? Thin? Fat? Hank, forget it, huh? Ride the ambulance to the morgue. When they get the slugs out of those bodies, run them over to the lab for ballistics. You saw him pretty good, didn't you? Careful as shit. 
Now, this is one thing in the movie that I kind of, again, kind of have a little bit of a hard time doing it, and I understand they're doing it for a movie convention. They're having the press there that are raising a big fuss and stinking, much like how it was seen in The Brave One. They were doing the same thing, and I just don't feel that there would be that much hue and cry at this point. Uh, but, you know, that, and that's a, one of the criticisms I've always kind of had of this, of Death Wish as well, as it seemed that things, the press took too much interest too quickly. But, again, you have to do it to move the movie along. Now, what ha what follows is a, is, a, is a scene that I think is really important, and they talk about some important issues. They've gone, uh, both Paul and Jack have gone to see Carol, who is his daughter and, and Jack's wife, uh, at the sanitarium. And it's out in the country, and they have a conversation after they've gone and seen her. So I'll go ahead and play that now. You know, if we had the brains to live here in the country, we wouldn't be here for the reason we are today. We'd be going into the city to work. Mom and Carol be safe at home, waiting for us to come back. Nothing to do but cut and run, huh? What about the old American social custom of self-defense? If the police don't defend us, maybe we ought to do it ourselves. We're not pioneers anymore, Dad. What are we, Jack? What do you mean? I mean, if we're not pioneers, what have we become? What do you call people who, when they're faced with a condition of fear, do nothing about it? They just... Run and hide. Civilized? <sighs> no. Well, that clip is pretty self-explanatory. And again, this was something that wasn't done in The Brave One. They didn't really talk about, do you have a right to self-defense? What do you do if the agencies that we've put in place as a society... So they're the police. What do you do if they can't help you, if they're not around or if they're too busy? They want to help you, but they can't. And we didn't really see anything like that in The Brave One. Now, that what happens next is the uh, Inspector Ochoa is saying, look, we've got to, we're under a lot of pressure from the press and they're going to want to know what we're doing. And so we are going to look for people that are going to have a motive. And we're looking for a guy who... Uh, probably his family's been attacked, so any homicides for the last three months. We're also going to look at uh, veterans because we see that he shoots this pistol pretty good. And so we're going to check everybody who's from Vietnam, who's from uh, Korea, and then going through World War II. Okay, later what happens is we, uh, we go from the police station... There's a couple of dudes that get on, um, they make their way back uh, from the car that they originally got in. There was a transit authority cop on there, so they leave there. As they're passing a dude, there's, he's reading a paper, and it says, Mayor demands vigilante to be stopped. So again, uh, you know, I, I think they're, they're kind of playing that up a little bit too much, but it is the movie convention, much as the same as they did in Brave One. These guys make their way through a couple of cars. They come to a car where Charles Bronson is. There's a guy who's a hoboken in the back. And then there's another couple. They get off at a stop. It's just them. They come up to him, go to rob him. One of them uh, whips a knife out and slices. Uh, Charles Bronson's sitting there and he's reading the newspaper. One of them um, 
slices his newspaper open and that bang bang and he shoots and kills those guys and so just to be clear when um there was only the couple the hobo charles bronson and the two thugs that were in the car and then at that stop the couple gets up they get off and also the kind of the bum or the guy he gets off and he gets off the train so when the thing happens charles bronson and the two robbers are the only guys that are in the subway car so the next day there's a big press conference and they're saying that they actually announced that the uh, there's been two more killings and the uh, bullets all match up from the previous three. And I, I don't know, there actually would have been, I guess, four previous shootings, but they only talk about the, the three previous. But uh, they go on TV and they're talking about, you know, if, if the killer's out there, he needs to uh, turn himself in and vigilanteism isn't the way to go. And one of the reporters asked, well, are crimes, are, are muggings down? And uh, even if, and if they were, would you tell us or would you keep that to yourself to prevent somebody doing like a copycat thing? And the guy's like, well, we're not going to get into this hypothetical stuff and blah, blah, blah. And so... And another thing again that was kind of funny is when they're when they're doing that press conference thing, it shows a reporter up on the top, and they kind of pan down, and then it shows a guy speaking Italian, a guy speaking uh, maybe French, and a guy speaking Spanish, like it's this big international news. Uh, and again, I, I keep kind of going back to that part of the movie convention, but it, what it does do is I guess it shows the tremendous amount of pressure that the police are going to be under coming from. Uh, you know, to, to apprehend the person who's doing this stuff. Earlier in the subway shooting, when he left, he actually left his groceries. And the police, of course, get that. They're going through it. One of the detectives is talking to Inspector Ochoa. And the guy says, well, we weren't able to get any prints off of it. And Ochoa picks up the receipt and says, well, what we'll do, There's, I'm sure there's a code on here that will tell us which D'Agostino's this, this stuff came from. And what we'll do is, when we find that out, we'll go there and we'll run the people in that neighborhood who live around that neighborhood and we'll see if any of them have any uh, family members that were hurt or killed from muggings within the last, you know, three months. And he says people buy groceries in the neighborhood in which they live. So he knows that he'll be able to narrow it down, which I thought was a pretty kind of smart way to do it. So the next scene, it uh, shows him, he's at home, um, his son-in-law is coming over to have dinner with him, and you can tell that he's he's painted the apartment, he's gotten things going, he's got music playing, the sunset, the son-in-law, excuse me, says, hey, I just went over to see Carol, and she's going to ask how she was doing, he's like, oh, I went and saw her yesterday, and he's like, well, what are you so upbeat about, basically, and he's like, well, what do you want me to do, moan and groan the rest of my life? Then, of course, what he doesn't know, but what we know is that the reason, the real reason he's feeling better is because he's actually taking some action. He's doing something. So in his mind, he's striking back. Uh, he's getting his life. He's taking his life back. Now, this is going to bring up an interesting point and some interesting things. Some people say that he lured the people into, uh, into attacking him. And, and before I get into that, the he is he's in the next scene is shows him he's in a diner and it's in kind of a crummy part of town and he flashes a bunch of money when he's paying for his food. Uh, some guys go down follow him. He ends up getting uh, ends up shooting them all, but also ends up getting getting cut up by one of them. 
And some people, when they talk about this movie, they say, well, this is the part where he's luring these people or he's setting them up to come attack them so that he can shoot them. But the reality of it is, if you look at it in real life type thing, is all those, so far everything has been a self-defense situation. The first guy tried to, um, that he actually hit with the quarters, had a knife on him. The next guy that he, the first guy who was he ended up shooting, had a gun on him. The uh, other three dudes, one of them had a tire iron, one of them had a knife, and so, and since there was three of them, you could say there was disparity of force, and they were coming at him. The guys on the subway, again, the guy, one guy had a knife and was threatening with him, uh, and the other guy had a knife as well. And the guys who uh, went down into the uh, into the down into the subway, and of course it's deserted down there, but they've both got knives. They're within probably ten feet of them. Now this time though, he shoots the one dude, and the other guy uh, kind of stabs him in the in the shoulder, um, but he shoots him as well. And then uh, the first guy that he shot has fallen to the ground. The second guy that he shot, the guy that I think cut him, takes off running. Charles uh, Paul turns around, shoots the guy, finishes the guy off that's on the ground. The other dude is running, trying to go up and out to the street level, and he shoots him again. The guy makes it up, falls down. There's police up there that are trying to arrest some prostitutes or something. They go taking off and running after him, but he's able to get onto the subway and slip away. So he makes it back home and he's able to patch himself up. Uh, the guy that, the mugger that he shot and ran up uh, onto the street level ends up dying of his wounds. Meanwhile, the police are slowly starting to close in on stuff. Their their net is, is tightening a little bit. And they figure out that Kersey is one of these guys who lives in the area where a lot of these shootings and things have taken place. And so they kind of put a tail on him. They go into his apartment and they actually find in the trash can the bandages from where he had, had hurt himself, where he had gotten cut. Now, meanwhile, or a little bit before this, he had gone, Paul had gone to a, uh, like a business cocktail party and there's all sorts of people and they're talking about, each one of them is talking about kind of a different thing uh, and that has to deal with the vigilante. And I'll go ahead and play that, but... Before I play that, again, this is some of the stuff that was that I felt that was lacking in the Brave One that they're trying to do here. At least they're they're given lots of points and counterpoints. It's probably having as much effect on the total crime picture as putting a band-aid on a nephew. I know, wait a minute. I don't know about that. I mean a mugger's gonna think twice about who he hits. Sure, they're hitting more old ladies, that's all. That's all. How you doing? Let me get you drink. I'll tell you one thing, the guy's a racist. You notice he kills more blacks than whites. Oh, for Pete's sake, Gary, more blacks are muggers than whites. What do you want us to do, increase the proportion of white muggers who will have racial equality among muggers? Oh, no, racial equality among muggers. Oh, I love it. Alright, so now the net is kind of closing in, and Paul is what they would call a person of interest. They know that all... The shootings have taken place in this area, and I know that he lives near these D'Agostinos, blah, blah, blah. So he's just one of the people that they're checking out. So once he leaves and goes to work, Ochoa puts one of his men to follow Paul, 
and he goes up to Paul's apartment, and he has a locksmith let him in there, and he searches around, finds uh, finds in the trash, finds a, uh, the bloody bandages that Paul had used to patch himself up after getting cut by the mugger. Okay, a little later that day, uh, Ochoa goes into City Hall and has a meeting with probably the police commissioner and the mayor and maybe the district attorney. And I'll go ahead and play the clip of what's said. The district attorney will see you now. Commissioner? Frank, you know the district attorney? Peters? Sir. Mr. says you have a pretty good suspect. Well, he uh, fits the bill in some respects. We uh, got a blood sample from the knife used on him in the subway and checked it against the sample I found in his apartment. It narrows it down. But in the balance, he could be the man. Yeah. Yeah, he could be. Thank Suppose this Paul Kersey is the vigilante. All right. Let's say that. We don't want him. Okay. Inspector, on my desk, I have a statistic red hot out of the computer. Mm-hmm. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? 950 a week to 470, he reported last week. You understand not too many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh, no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. We'd have vigilantes out in the street killing anybody who even looked greasy. You can see that. We want this man to quit, desist, go away, to stop. So the mugging rate can go up? By arrest him. Wouldn't that get him off the streets? My God, man, I don't want a martyr on my hands. All right. All right. I just want to hear you say it. I'll try to scare him off. But that's as far as I'll go. That's right, Frank. Scare him off. Scare him off. Now, in that scene, this is where I think this movie, for me, has a lot of credibility and really shines. When they tell him, look, we don't want this guy, he immediately knows what they're talking about. And he's like, all right. And, again, he makes them actually come out and say, we don't want to arrest him. We don't want him to be a martyr. We just want him gone because if we don't, there's going to be, we're going to have mayhem in the streets. So... Instead of him being outraged and throwing a fit and doing all this other stuff, which is what would usually be the the thing to do in a in a modern movie, I thought it was handled really well. This guy, uh, he's a high inspector, Frank Ochoa's character. He knows how to play ball. He knows what's going on. So again, I I thought that this was that's this scene is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just because. It, number one, is really well acted. It's subtle uh, in, in certain regards, especially if you compare it to, to modern movies. 
but it's a believable scene. It's something that you could see, uh, you know, the, the politicians doing. So in order to scare him off, what Ochoa does is he calls him up kind of anonymously and says, hey, you're under police surveillance. They're watching you. A little bit later, he, um, as Kersey is coming home, as Paul is coming home from work, he has a squad car basically and, and three cops kind of rough him up and, and just, again, kind of sending home the, the uh, message to him that, look, we're watching you. Uh, if we have to, we're going to do this to you all the time. So knock off the stuff that you're doing, basically. So now Paul is aware that he is being monitored, that he's under police surveillance. And what he does, instead of going out through the front, he actually goes out through the uh, service entrance. And he goes back to his office. Now, one thing I should have mentioned before is when Ochoa called him anonymously at work saying that you're under police surveillance, what he did is he took out his pistol and he left it at work. So when the cops uh, searched him and kind of gave him a little bit of a shakedown there, he didn't have anything on him. So when he, he gives him the slip back at his house. He goes into work and gets his gun. Meanwhile, the detective that Ochoa sent out to make a phone call to see if Paul was still in the apartment has come back and said, hey, he's gone. Ochoa says, you stay here, and he takes off. So Ochoa goes uh, by where Paul's work is, because they, they know where he works. And he runs in there and talks to the doorman and said, hey, was Mr. Kersey here? And the door guy's like, yeah, he just left you know, a few minutes ago. So Paul is now sort of out on the streets, kind of hunting, so to speak. He's walking down a, like a long thing, a, uh, a long stairway type thing, um, like a like you'd see like in a big park where there's a big stone stairway. There's two guys that come down on the bottom and they got knives and they're saying, you know, give us the money. You can't run back up. And then one of their their partner, a third guy, is up at the at, at the top of the stairs, and he's kind of at the halfway point, and. So they kind of face off for a little bit, and the guy on the top actually has a—he actually has a gun. Looks like he's got maybe a some type of a semi-automatic. So he—they kind of stare each other down. He shoots the guy on—if you were looking at him on his right—that's below him. Shoots him, drops him. He turns around then to shoot at the other guy up at the top of the stairs. He shoots at him, and that guy kind of dives off to the side so he doesn't get hit. The other mugger that was down below then takes off running. Paul chases after him, shoots and drops him. Meanwhile, the guy who was at the top of the stairs has come down, and he shoots at Paul and either grazes him or hits him in the leg. Um, and then he, the guy who, who uh, shoots Paul, the mugger who shoots Paul, goes up to check on his friend, sees that he's dead. At this point, Paul's gotten back up, takes a shot at that guy at the the mugger who's left, the guy with the gun, and then they have a, a chase. Meanwhile, uh, Ochoa hears on the radio that there's a incident down at the park where shots are being fired, and so he is rushing to the scene. He chases the uh, mugger into what looks like maybe like an abandoned factory, and he is actually up like on a on a higher part of the factory, like on a scaffolding thing, and he sees the guy down there, and he yells at him. He says, "Hey." you know, fill your hand, and the guy's like, what? And he's probably a good, oh, I don't know, almost 100 feet away from him. And 
Paul is real like he's sweaty. He's lost blood from his leg wound. And uh, the guy's like, what are you doing? And then, and then Paul says, okay, draw. And the, and the guy's just like looking at him, you know, kind of looking at him from up on high. And then Paul passes out. And then when that happens, the guy, the mugger, just takes off running. He leaves. The next scene is there are all the cops and the ambulances at the factory. Ochoa shows up, and he's taken to the first uh, responding officer who was on scene, who's like just a uniformed officer. I'll go ahead and play the clip here. What you're not going to be able to tell in the audio clip version is that the uniformed officer actually gives Ochoa the pistol, the 32 caliber revolver. You Riley? Yes, sir. I'm Ochoa. You were the first man on the scene? Yes, sir. God bless you, sir. Never mind that. They told me on the radio you had to see me? For courtesy. You spoke to him before the ambulance got here? No, sir. What did you get? His address, sir. Is that all? Well? to this on your report? Not yet, sir. Why not? I was uh, waiting for instructions, sir. You never saw it? Yes, sir. Oh, uh, what's your full name? Jackson Riley, sir. 21st Precinct. Okay. I'll remember it. So Ochoa goes to the hospital where they've got Paul. He walks in there, and uh, I'll go ahead and play the clip of kind of the final interaction that they have. Police, I'd like to have him alone. Your gun, Mr. Kersey. We try to give you a chance to get rid of it. You wouldn't take it. Do you hear me okay? We uh, have here a peculiar situation, Mr. Kersey. We find it necessary to make you a proposition since you are not going to favor us by dying. You uh, work for a company with lots of offices. Get a transfer to another city, and I'll drop this gun in the river. Are we connecting, Mr. Kersey? We want you to get out of New York. Permanently. Inspector. By sundown. So with this, Ochoa kind of gives him a kind of a wry smile or a little grin there and shakes his head and walks out. There's a bunch of press people out there and they're saying, is this guy the vigilante? And he's like, no, he's not. And they're like, well, we had reports that he was. And he's like, false reports. The vigilante's still out there and blah, blah, blah. 
So Paul takes the uh, advice and he gets transferred to Chicago. He's at the train station and a representative from the company or the firm comes to uh, help him get settled in. While they're at the chain, train station, excuse me, a bunch of kind of like hippie guys are kind of harassing this girl and uh, knock their knock her packages out of her hand. And he goes over and you know kind of helps her pick up some of her stuff. And then the hippie guys see them see him doing this, and they're you know kind of flipping him off and yelling at him a little bit. And he just kind of bends down a little bit and he makes the old uh, the gun sign like with his finger extended and his thumb up, and he's kind of smiling at him. And that's how the movie ends. So I would recommend this movie. Uh, I think it's really worth seeing. Especially if you take a t- take your time and, and look for some of the subtle things. Now a lot of things in this movie, again, and this is was is similar with some of the stuff that was in the Brave one, they are kind of a little bit heavy-handed and over the top. Uh, and again, some of the... the uh, how the people are portrayed are more... Uh, real kind of over-the-top outlandish people if you look at the the real estate agent in Tucson and and some of the other things, you know, one of his friends and some of the other people are, again, kind of fall into that caricature um, portrayal as opposed to being, you know, what you would think a real person would be. Having said that, you know, the movie offers a lot. Um, There's been lots of criticisms that he had lured all the people in there, and but it really, everything that he did was self-defense and even at the end when he was going to kind of shoot it out with that one guy he's you know he said draw your weapon before he passed out the very last thing uh and some people would say well you know he suckered those people in by flashing money or by having the groceries but the reality is that stuff that people would do every day every day somebody would ride on the subway with their groceries every day somebody's going to pay and especially back in 74, you paid with cash. You, there, there was no, um, there was, credit cards really weren't that common. Most places even, uh, if they, if you had a credit card, didn't take it. Uh, especially restaurants, the big stores would, but a lot of times restaurants, things like that. And we kind of forget that living in sort of the modern age where everybody takes, uh, you can use your credit card to buy a, you know, a piece of two cent gum if you want. Uh, but back then, Pretty much everybody paid with cash, and so, and especially in a big city, you were going to always have some cash on you. So I don't necessarily buy into the fact that it was a total setup, and then the, uh, as some of the critics say, and the, uh, and that the criminals, you know, were kind of taken unaware. Now, having said that, you know, he he was out on the hunt, and he was doing things that he normally would not do uh, before all this, before all the events happened that kind of changed his life. He never would have gone out probably at night. He never would have gone into the dark parks or gone into areas that he knew would have been dangerous. Now, again, with the compare and contrast of the two movies, uh, I think Death Wish is far superior. I think it it tries to give at least some social commentary, and it does, in a subtle way, do point and counterpoint. In a lot of ways, like I said, it did have some heavy-handed stuff. There's parts where, the, of course, the papers are filled with the vigilante thing. The, uh, there's billboards of it. It's in Newsweek and People and all these, you know, current magazines and everything. So that part of it was a little over the top. Uh, uh, but again, you can kind of let some of that go as far as more, it's more or less just kind of a movie convention to, 
to try and bring the audience more into the story. Personally, I didn't think it really needed to be that that overdone as far as, you know, the magazines and the paper and the news and all this other stuff. So, uh, but all in all, a really good movie. If you haven't seen it and you've listened to this, again, this is, you know, I've pretty much gone through the whole thing and, and uh, given lots of spoilers on how it ends and all that stuff. But this movie was released in 74, so uh, you've probably heard about it. Also, you, you would probably understand, I think there's an, another four movies i think it went up to maybe death wish five i know there was at least four uh um you know in the whole series so you had death wish then death with two three and four and there may have been a five but I, I can't remember right off the top of my head now again in comparing the two i thought that the brave one rang kind of hollow i thought that it was just a purely just sort of like almost like a revenge type movie where this one, while, yeah, it is a revenge movie, I did see that they tried to at least bring in some social commentary into it a little bit. Again, it's not uh, foremost in the movie, but it is throughout the movie, and if you look for it. If you're not looking for it, if you're just watching it kind of as an entertainment thing, a lot of that stuff washes over you. It's not so blatant that you're, that you're smacked over the head with it and kind of taken out of the movie. Also, I'm doing another thing. It's a new thing to try and be able to track the statistics. I've mentioned on this the show before, I don't really have a way to track the downloads. I tried to use, I, I use WordPress and my um, the actual server that I use or the host doesn't really give me the type of statistics I need. So I heard on another podcast I was listening to that they use this thing called PodTrack. Uh, basically, it's kind of a way to get to... Uh, do advertising and stuff like that i don't know if i'll ever have any advertisers um it would be nice to be able to get one or two and then they could pay for maybe some upgrades and equipment but anyway one of the things that they do is that there's a survey if you go to the website there's a the shortened version of the of the survey and then if enough people do it what they'll do is they'll say oh well uh you know such and such of i don't know like somebody who makes you know slingshots or something they want to advertise on this show because they think that maybe the people that would listen to it might want to buy them or something like that uh but in exchange for doing that or in exchange for having that thing on the site i'll they actually give me the statistics so if it works out pretty well uh, i'll stay with them if not you know i'll i'll get rid of it but if you have the time go over to the website fill out that little survey and uh, i i'm kind of of two minds of it but like I said, it'd be nice to be able to, if I was able to get a sponsor and that was able to pay at least maybe for the hosting services and like the bandwidth and stuff like that. So, and that way I could at least break even. So anyway, that's enough of that begging. All right, guys and gals, that's going to wrap it up for today. Hope you guys have enjoyed the show and I'll try and be back next week. I think what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to do a review on, um, I've got a Camelback Mule, and what it is is it's a, it's a small backpack. You've got a couple of outside pockets, and then you've also it also holds that 100-ounce hydration bladder. So that's what I'm going to do. If you want to go ahead and send me in some stuff or do your reviews on that, if you've had any experience with it, go ahead and do that, send that in, let me know, and we can all either read them on the show or play your MP3 or... If, again, you wanted to call in on the voice line, that's uh, area code 206-339-3266. 
Uh, also, if you want to drop me an email, it is thearmedape at gmail.com. All right, later, guys. This guy's got a monkey scrotum, and he's bragging about it. Oh,